everybody I think that uh, works with DARPA thinks the program managers are crazy to some extent. <laughs> um, you're anticipate expected to be off the wall. Yeah. Um, you're expected to push the envelope beyond where it could be. And you know, people say, "Well, that's out of the box thinking." And I, I used to tell them, "We don't even believe there is a box." And so, you know, how far can you push it? Yeah. And you know, we knew but- you know that butyrate was an end product of fat metabolism. That's where you know, it enters the Krebs cycle. So it was a rational and logical place to look. Welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm really, really, really excited to have Dr. Joseph Belitsky come to, into our program today. This is an especially special guest because he is very much integral to the ketone ester story. So by background, Joe was a program manager at DARPA Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency that actually kicked off the whole metabolic dominance ketone ester research. So welcome to the program, Joe. It's, it's great to have some of the original characters back into the story here. Thanks, it's, it's good to be here. So the history is not well understood or told. So I'm real excited to start teasing into the history here and make sure it's captured in the history book. So can you describe your, your, your experience? And I know you were the chief veterinarian officer for NASA. How did you end up at DARPA and how did uh, metabolic performance come into the picture? This is, you know, early 2000, 2001, you know, this is, you know, almost 20 years ago. That's a good question. How I ended up at DARPA. Um, most of the program managers are brought in by invitation for a two to four year period. Some of them may stay six, but pretty much you, you're brought in for new ideas and then you're let go because you run out of them. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that sounds right, but it's pretty much the way it works. And I was at NASA. I participated in several uh, studies looking at infectious diseases. And apparently I got somebody's attention because I got a a call one day that said, how would you like to come to D.C. and talk to us about maybe coming to DARPA on a temporary basis? So I did. And it seemed to have worked out pretty well. What was your academic background? So you, it was interesting because I I know a lot of the veterinarians I talked to end up being more broad than human doctors, just because you have to get so deep across so many different physiologies and animals. Uh, I'm curious, even before, you know, NASA and DARPA, how did you get into, you know, veterinarian uh, medicine? Well, I started out working in a zoo. Okay. And after a couple of years, I took a position at the University of Washington Primate Center out in Seattle. And I spent some time out there, some time at the Yerkes Primate Center at Emory University. And uh, then I went to NASA. And so I spent really about 20 years in biomedical research working across all areas of science. And you can't help but work with smart people and not pick up a little something in their field. So over time, I just kind of, you know, I know a little about a lot of different things, but not a lot about one particular thing. So, so, you know, and eventually became the, the chief veterinarian officer for NASA. So right. that's not surprising, actually, if you think about the first astronauts were dogs and monkeys. I mean, the, the cosmology program in, in Soviet in the Soviet Union. So I imagine there's a bunch of animal work there. There it kind of goes up and down as far as frequency. Um, NASA typically employs there's four or five veterinarians that NASA has. Um, there's one astronaut uh, who is a, vet, a veterinarian who's in the professional astronaut corps. Uh, Rick Linehan, and uh, he was instrumental in convincing me I wanted to tr- wanted to work with NASA, and uh, it, it it was it it's been a, a great time. I've gotten to do a lot of strange and different things. 
um, working work with with our Russian colleagues, with our Japanese colleagues, our European colleagues. So um, kind of all, and again, across all areas of science, when you're the veterinarian, you get the studies that they're doing. You don't get to pick which ones you work on, but your job is to make sure they go as well and smoothly as possible. You pull together this 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 broad background of experience through NASA and you got the call from DARPA. So folks that aren't aware of DARPA, it's sort of the, the sci-fi R&D center for the U.S. military. And you got the call, you headed over to D.C. And what happens? Well, DARPA is a little bit different because they don't tell you what you have to work on. Your job is to also determine what you want to work on. Huh. Okay. It has to have military relevance. It has to be forward thinking. It can't be incremental. It has to be more revolutionary than evolutionary. Uh, so I kind of always have had an interest in endurance sports and, you know, what you need to do uh, to complete an Ironman or half Ironman in some kind of decent physical shape. Interesting. And so when I got to DARPA, it was a t- it was um, we were involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this is on 2001, 2005. Yeah, this is right after 9-11. OK. One of the issues was, you know, how do you provide support uh, to the warfighter, to the young, young men and women who are. Uh, going out to the field of combat in these places that really are pretty hostile environments when you think about working at 120 degrees, carrying 90 pounds, you know, wearing body armor and all the protective clothing and the material equipment that you've got to carry. And so uh, one of the questions was, you know, if we're going to put them in that condition, how do we make sure they have adequate calories that they can do their task, not become fatigued and not set them up to fail at a time when it's critical for their life? And so really it came out of that kind of mindset, a combination uh, a triathlon endurance sport back, sports background and saying, you know, what are the, the what does the warfighter need when they're going into the field of combat and how do you give them the best energy support you can? Right. Or transition the kid who gets drafted um, from being an 18, 19 year old who's been playing video games at a couch potato um, over a 12 week period into someone who's physically fit. And part of the goal was to see if we could get a 20 percent improvement in strength and endurance in 12 weeks. Right. So, you know, those are pretty unreasonable requirements at the time we proposed it. But um, we, we, most of everything we did seems to have worked out. It does take some time yeah. uh, to, from a concept to a product, though. Right. I mean, we can talk about that full transition. I mean, this was conceptualized, as you're saying, in, in, in 2001, 2005, your tenure at DARPA. And now in 2018, you know, the, the, the DARPA program that you initiated became a commercial product for the first time. And, and that's literally almost 20 years of, of progress. It's probably <laughs> about the time it takes for new ideas to actually, one, get the basic research established, right. you know, and there's been a lot of steps along the way from synthetic process, safety, efficacy, testing, and then, you know, getting through kind of an imaginary ba- barrier of what the public and the consumer is willing to accept and thinks they want or need. Right. And then getting a product out there that, you know, keeps everybody happy. Right. That has a marketplace. Yeah. Uh, you can't sell something if it's going to lose money on a continuous basis. So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of barriers to getting a, a product from a scientific concept into a commercial market. Absolutely. I mean, let's let's dive into it. Before talking about, it, I want to actually talk about your your endurance. I mean, it sounded like you were. I mean, were you competitive? Were you? You know, what times were you throwing up? Just enjoyed it. Um, uh, good friends. It was good to be embarrassed every week with my friends and colleagues that raced with me. 
you know, I, I usually finished in the top third, but it never got past that. Okay. And, uh, but you do learn a little bit about how to manage energy during a long race. You pretty much knew in a half Ironman, you know, mile 30 to 35, you're going to be going, why am I out here doing this? Which is usually the first sign that you're hypoglycemic. Right. And, uh, you know, and then you're trying to fake it for the next 25 miles on the bike and next 13 miles on the run. Um, how do I get calories into my body? Right. So I can continue at a pace that's reasonable and not be totally embarrassed. Yeah. And then a lot of our discussion with professional triathletes, they often say that, you know, the triathlon is swim, cycle, run. And the fourth sport of triathlons are, is nutrition. How do you feel yourself over, you know, that five hours you're doing that half Ironman or that 10 hours you're doing that full Ironman? Uh, uh, you, if nutrition is an art and a science and a competition in of itself. Well, we talk you just talk to people who are just starting and tell them that, you know, everybody tries to figure out how they can eat through this process. And you have to eat because you can't just can't get the carbs otherwise. Right. Um, but also right. learning to run on empty, um, you know, always being a little hypoglycemic or a little bit below optimal because your metabolism will adjust to that. Right. And, you know, I always tell people that I knew I had enough energy in my stored energy in my body for a couple of weeks. I just couldn't get to it. Right. And uh, so the question was, you know, how do you go ahead and make that transition from, carbohydrate metabolism to stored energy and fats. Which is and an interesting segue into the conception of the ketone ester, right? So for, you know, again, to, to review the physiology here, when you're talking about reducing uh, glycogen reserves or going hypoglycemic, our bodies only store a limited amount of glucose or sugar or carbohydrate, around 2000 or so calories. And that will fuel you for a little bit, but uh, in, you know, in a, in a three, four hour run or cycle, you're, you're draining through all of that. So that's why a lot of, I would say like the the old school approach to solve that problem is the carb load, right? You, you, we've all heard of the discussion, you know, eat a ton of pasta before your marathon or slam all these sugar bombs and glucose drinks as you're racing. Um, so that, that must have been in your head as you're conceptualizing oh, sure. the DARPA program. So it was like, okay. You can only, yeah, you can only eat so much pasta the night before because right. you can only saturate your, your glycogen stores so much. Right. And then after that, you know, when they're depleted, it's got to come from someplace else. Right. And, you know, we metabolize glucose and fructose pretty quickly when it's taken orally. And, you know, you kind of ride the roller coaster up and down. Which enters into the world of ketones and ketosis and fat, fat metabolism. I think when uh, perhaps a layman thinks about, you know, X-Men and super soldier serums are thinking, you know, crazy pharmacologic, you know, phar pharmaceutical compounds. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that, you know, you guys were not pursuing an investigative new drug, or, you know, the drug route. You guys are not, you know, going down the supplement pathway. This is uh, nutritional uh, food. This is a food stuff, stuff food substance uh, with caloric, uh, you know, with caloric value. Uh, and, and it really looks like a fourth macronutrient. And um, that must have confused people. I mean, even with our label today, um, you know, the three macronutrients, as, as people you know, commonly look at them, fats, carbs, proteins, there's none of it in the ketone ester, but there's still caloric value. And most people are like, how is that even, that, that, I don't understand. I mean, I mean, I, and I can imagine, you know, 20 years ago, people were like, is this even, is this, real are you i mean what was the perception what was the thought that people thought you were crazy uh, how, how was the skepticism 
Every, everybody, I think, that uh, works with DARPA thinks the program managers are crazy to some extent. <laughs> uh, you're anticipate, expected to be off the wall. Yeah. Um, you're expected to push the envelope beyond where it could be. And, you know, people say, well, it's out of the box thinking. And I, I used to tell them we don't even believe there is a box. And so, you know, how far can you push it? Yeah. And, you know, we knew but- you know, that butyrate was an end product of fat metabolism. That's where you know, it enters the Krebs cycle. So it was a rational and logical place to look. Anything um, before that, you know, was going to take some other enzyme systems and some breakdown mechanisms to, to get it to enter the energy cycle. Um, the nice thing about butyrate, when you look at it compared to pyruvate, uh, you know, that they're really pretty close as far as energy production. Right. And, you know, uh, you know the, the Gibbs free energy is, you know, it's closer than most compounds that, that are in the energy cycle. And so, you know, we we didn't know it would work. We didn't know we could do it when we started. And that's the nice thing about DARPA. They ask you to do things that nobody has done before. Right. And so it gives you a shot to be a little bit crazy. And I think it's also a, a good engineering, just ruling out possibilities, right? If, as you mentioned, there's just a limited number of pathways that activate the Krebs cycle, the citric acid cycle, and it's just like, okay, if if pyruvate or glycolysis has one pathway, and, and that's well understood, people are already carb loading, can we load the other side without just eating fat? And that's like not, not good enough. You can't eat fat directly. Can we hack or come up with new compounds that can you know, enter into the, the butyrate pathway or the, that, that pathway, which I think is a, it, it doesn't, it sounds like almost obvious or elegant from in retrospect, right? It's like, okay, we know this one pathway, we've tapped that out. Where else can we look? Well, it's gotta be the, the other, uh, other possible pathway. And then how, what can we do there? It only looks elegant when it works. Uh, <laughs> and if it not worked, it wouldn't have been so elegant. But I mean, it, it, it was the, the thought process that went behind it, you know, was looking at, you know, the metabolic pathways chart and saying, okay, where can we play? Yeah. And there really aren't very many places. You know, from protein breakdown, you go through gluconeogenesis, right. but then you still enter, the, you know, through pyruvate yep. with that. And so yep. Yep. this is really the only other energy point that you can enter um, the Krebs cycle. Um, with an exogenous product. And yeah. so it was kind of focused on, you know, where can we actually do this? What's, what's the inflection point? Right. And we and we really wanted to get away from, um, you, know, insulin, you know, insulin cycling, that this is not an insulin-dependent factor. Um, and it, it's a cycle that goes up and down, and you've got peaks and valleys. With butyrate, it kind of flatlines the energy availability. So you don't have to worry about that quite as much. And so if you can keep your, you know, the circulating levels up, you've got adequate energy and, and brain and muscle don't really object to living up butyrate. Yep. I think that's a subtle uh, physiology that people don't understand and I think will become well understood in the in, in the near future, hopefully, that, you know, when people are slamming these glucose drinks and glucose shots, they are very aggressively spiking insulin and crashing insulin, spiking insulin and crashing insulin. And yeah. a lot of these, like, endurance athletes end up having pre-diabetic looking biomarkers with higher resting levels of insulin, higher H1BACs. Um, and I think some, so, and I think that's why you see the ketogenic diets, exogenous ketones getting more and more interest. Can you have an insulin, you know, a non-insulinogenic or insulin dependent, if you will, uh, substrate that fuel as a very efficient fuel for the body and brain. And this doesn't play with any of those pathways associated with either type one or type two diabetes. So, you know, it's like, it's separate from that. And so, you know, is it more efficient? Uh, time will tell. Right. Um, but right now it looks like it's effective, which is, you know, 
first step is even demonstrating efficacy. And, yeah. and I think that's happening. I think we were confident from a theoretical point of view that it would happen. And it really has taken 15 years to get here. Yeah. Um, you know, over repeated testing, you know, it, it's, it's proving that this isn't a good way to give energy to, uh, in a non-carbohydrate based manner. Right. So, you know, you're over at DARPA, and some of the other key collaborators that you pulled together include Professor Karen Clark over at University of Oxford and Dr. Richard Veach at the National Institutes of Health. So how did all these characters come together under your aegis over at DARPA? I, 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 you know, from my understanding, you know, every RFP has multiple bidders, multiple potential, uh, you know, you know, pathways of execution. And, 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 and the Veach-Clark uh, path ended up panning out. Can you describe that story and, and how that all came together? You know, DARPA doesn't write an RFP. They actually write something called a broad agency announcement. Okay. And so people ask people what area they want to work in. Mm -hmm. And a broad agency announcement gives them a target that says we want to create a ketogenic diet. Okay. And both Kieran and Bud Richard, whichever name he's going by now, I know him by Bud, um, you know, both of them had interest in the applications of butyrate to certain clinical problems um, that were basically defects in carbohydrate metabolism. And so, and both of them have uh, pedigrees in metabolic physiology that you're not going to replicate very many places. Right. So, you know, um, DARPA has a tendency to attract world-class researchers. Um, who can take a chance with their career, you know, taking three or four years off to try and create a butyrate based diet and demonstrate its efficacy, um, could be career ending if it doesn't work for a young investigator. So you have a tendency to get young, crazy investigators who don't know the risk or really old established people who are willing to take the risk because they, they want to create, leave a legacy behind as far as what they do with, with something. So I think both Bud and Kieran fall in that category. Um, but they self assembled. Um, they came forward with this concept and, you know, said, we think we know how to do this and we think we know how to control the chemistry and <clears throat> they demonstrated they could. That must have been, uh, how, how I mean, it, it, to, for you as a program manager and, and, and seeing this, I mean, just a, a team that assembled to, to help, you know, create this vision, you know, how, what was that like back in, I guess, like what, this like 2003, I believe was when. Uh, the announcement came out and some of the initial, uh, you know, responses came in. I mean, what was your thought process? Like, did you think that no one would respond? Were you thinking, oh, you know, this is a cool project. A lot of people would respond. Um, I mean, I think that the name itself, I believe you called it metabolic dominance. It's such a cool, <laughs> uh, code name or project name. I mean, it, 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 it did morph away from metabolic dominance to peak soldier performance okay. because, um, it needed a more of a, a defense orientation and it worked. <laughs> it was the same program, just a different acronym. And okay. so it, it worked out fine, but it was really all focused on mitochondrial function. Right. And, you know, you, you typically will spend a year, year and a half trying to conceptualize the program. You know, what are the elements that need to go into it? Um, who may be the key players, you know, in this country or globally. And, you know, you're looking for somebody who has confidence that they can pull something off. Um, because typically you're asking to do something, do something that nobody has ever done before. Right. Uh, and so, you know, when you do that, you don't get everybody coming out of the woods saying, I'm stupid enough to tell you I can do this when nobody's ever been able to before. Right. Uh, and confidence, you know, have good science, good scientific pedigree. 
um, and having a vision for how to pull it off. Yeah. So, so I think some of the most interesting scientific results from the research were uh, that the uh, the delta G, the, the Gibbs free energy of ketone metabolism was more efficient than glucose metabolism or, or even fat metabolism. Uh, I thought that was just so fundamental to life. I mean, I, I mean, that's literally the, the fundamental equation of, 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 of life, right? Like, can you produce, how much work can you done with a given amount of substrate? That was one of the most interesting results that I, you know, that came from some of the work. I'm sure as you were monitoring and, and, and incorporating some of the, the work, there were you know, ups and downs, surprises of results. I mean, what stuck out to you as some interesting results uh, from the scientific side, from the product side, from the compound side? What, what were some of the surprises? What were some of the disappointments uh, as you were working through the technology? I, I think the, it's going to sound, sound real funny, but a lot of the real frustrating parts had nothing to do with the science. They had more to do with intellectual property. Huh. <laughs> and trying to sort out, you know, what needed to be protected, how it needed to be protected so that this could actually become a product. Mm -hmm. And um, but and then I think overcoming the flavor and aroma issue with this and finding the right um, compound of all the all the potential possibilities you have when you talk about butyrate. Right. Uh, that, you know, how do you minimize the negatives and optimize the positives? And you know they were able to work through the through a lot of that, right? Uh, and you know, and then you know, backing it up with you know with studies in in mice and rats that showed that you know they were able to actually you know function um, at a low level of physical activity for periods that were significantly longer right. than mice on a normal chow. Yeah, was that surprising to you? I mean, I think just reading either the published peer reviewed results, I was like, wow, mice were literally solving mazes thirty eight percent faster than control. I mean, you know, that, that just like that doesn't that, that's just like holy shit like that, well, you're the that, program manager you expect the impossible to happen so you know after a while you know you find that you, you work with so many really great scientists that do stuff that everybody says is impossible um you're not surprised when it works <laughs> um, you're, you're 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 already pre-focused that this is going to be successful because you've had to walk forward and get the get the funding to right. distribute give to the investigator and so you know you go in with a degree of optimism that, you know, the science that you've looked for and reassembling the pieces of the puzzle to form a different picture right. um, is possible. And then as the, but as the data started coming in, it became more and more obvious that this was not only possible if we could overcome, you know, the palatability issues, that this was going to be a product that would be right. would be worth. Any result, any scientific result surprise you or were you just like, oh, of course, like I, I, that's what I expect. I mean, none of the results surprised you. You're not really. <laughs> I mean, that's how. I mean, once they got the synthetic pathway down, right? Because they had they had to come up with a totally new synthetic process. Um, once that happened, um, I think the physiology that I anticipated was there. Okay. And the results that they were getting was what, you know, I had prayed for and hoped for all along. Right. And so I wasn't really surprised that they got the results, um, but it did make me smile a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for, you know, you know, someone that I guess doesn't have the theoretical background. I mean, some of the just end results are just com ultra compelling, right? 40% reduction in lactic acid production. And for, you know, if you're doing an Ironman, you are generating so much lactate, you're sore, you're, you're, you're that burn and you're producing 40% less of that. I mean, that's, that's an incredible 
number, right? You're increasing aerobic endurance performance. That's pretty phenomenal. I mean, not a lot of things improve human performance. Um, making rats smarter. I mean, like there's more, you know, some uh, some data in the publication pipeline around that also reflecting in uh, in, in humans as well. Um, these are pretty sci-fi results, and it's it's kind of funny to hear that you 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 knew that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing is that this was just 25% of the program, that this wasn't the only thing that we looked at. Okay. Because we looked at thermal control, um, you know, by keeping you cooler, could you go longer? And mm -hmm. the answer is you certainly can. Mm -hmm. We also looked at uh, a number of polyphenols as far as the impact it had on mitochondrial function. And, uh, and we knew that polyphenols are an important part of, you know, oxidative uh, protection against free radicals and oxidative damage, but we didn't know really how it would work with the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was just looking, I hate to say this, looking at a lot of microbial physiology and looking at the mitochondria as a bacteria mm -hmm. that let us ask some questions about, you know, how, how would you put this together differently if you had to figure out how to make it work? So some of it was just um, looking at the science differently, but also getting people to come forward and telling you, I think this will contribute. Right. I think this could work. And then giving you good scientific evidence on why their thinking, contrary to the way everybody else was thinking, was possible. Right. And, and Futurate fell into that category. I mean, I think a lot of people thought about it. You know, the Atkins diet was emerging. You see South Beach diet was coming out. You see a lot of things happening you know, around this time frame. Um, but there were you know, more skeptics than there were supporters. And I think the ketone, the, the role that beta-hydroxybutyrate played in Atkins or South Beach was relatively unknown. I mean, I think it was, you know, focused more on the protein and reducing the carbs. But I think the, the implication of the BHP itself was relatively, you know, less known, right? Uh, well, they, they knew it was a ketotic di ketogenic diet. Right. But they hadn't really looked at the pathways. They hadn't really looked at what was going on with respect to fat metabolism because right. – really was about suppressing carbohydrates. Right. Um, the ketones was actually, you know, you had to drink a lot of water to make sure that you were able to get, deal with the ketones that you were producing. But, you know, it ended up being a little bit different than what everybody thought. Yeah, right. And that's, that's the, the nice thing about it is over time, you know, to some extent, we, we're, we've, we've rewritten some of the chapters in the physiology book. Right. And, and I think that's, for me, that's one of the, the more fun things is that, uh, there is new science that comes out and you, know, you have to be able to see it to take advantage of it. Yep. And I think that's something that I think will be more and more well understood that, you know, when you have a ketone ester on top of a fully carb replete human, you're in a novel state of physiology where you have dual fuel sources. I mean, that just doesn't occur in nature when you have full glycogen reserves and, you know, fully topped up with ketones. So uh, it, it is not a stretch of, it's not an exaggeration to say, this is novel physiology. This is a new chapter in a physiology textbook. No, but you know, there's a lot of things that switch over to fat metabolism. Hibernating animals, animals in torpor, you know, right. they don't have enough carbs to live through that period. So, I mean, there's a lot of changes that happen. Right. And, you know, and we, did, and we have looked at, you know, hibernators as a, a basis for some of the metabolic things that happen in transitions to support that, you know, butyrate can be metabolized over long periods without harm. But my understanding is that humans are the best animals at using, are generating, are, are, are ketogenic, in the sense that a large part of that evolutionary function was that you needed fuel for the brain, and a brain energy metabolism for the human is a lot uh, greater than 
the requirements for a bear, for example. You know, a bear doesn't need to have as much ketones to fuel the brain. The other, you know, gluconeogenesis will provide enough glucose to fuel the brain over a long hibernation period, but it's not enough for humans, and therefore humans are one of the most ketotic animals. Yeah, bears may have different um, cognitive capabilities, yeah. but their brain still needs, you know, the same kind of metabolic support. Right. And so it actually, the black bear will probably be the model for, you know, for people as far as some forms of energy metabolism. Uh, I think that the, the other thing is, is that this transition away from believing that the brain only lived on glucose yeah. um, you know, is is going to upset a lot of people over time because for that was the dogma for a long, long time. And we're finding more and more that, you know, butyrate is an adequate, pro, adequate energy source for the brain. That neurons don't object. Yeah. That mitochondria are perfectly happy taking calor, you know, producing ATP with you know, butyrate as a major substrate. So, um, things are changing as a result of this too. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're in conversations with uh, Professor Stephen Kunain, who has a PET scanning method in terms of looking at ketone metabolism in the brain, and you know, there's more and more data suggesting that uh, you know ketones not just a source of metabolic substrate for the brain, but also preferred substrate for uh, brain metabolism. I mean, it gets uptake first before glucose. You know, if you think about other non-human primates, they're kind of squat and gobble eaters. Right. You know, a bamboo will stuff his mouth as much as he can, then go off and, and you know, digest what he's got stuffed in the cheek pouches. Um, but they probably experience ketosis on a regular basis mm -hmm. um, because food may not be readily available. They may be you know, in a, period, a dry period of the year. So all those things kind of come into play in how you think about what humans are capable of, too. Right. Um, and, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, we probably weren't always intended to be fat and sassy, that we were probably, you know, lean. Um, we probably had a high, much higher energy, daily energy requirement than we have now. And, uh, you know, and that we probably experienced long periods of ketosis. So I think, I think that's a good point. In our natural, I guess, more primal states, we were... Uh, clearly cycling in and out of ketosis and just in our modern obese pre-diabetic society i mean most americans are on the path of being overweight obese if not pre-diabetic and diabetic that we're not i mean yeah we're we're, we're very much over on, on you know very much on the extreme side of energy consumption um but but i, I i'm actually curious to dive into some of the other candidate compounds. So you were mentioning that um, as you're identifying different butyrate compounds, obviously the one that we're commercializing is a D3 beta hydroxybutyrate uh, butane dial monoester. Um, but it's not like, you know, in the early uh, planning and early research periods, there are a bunch of candidate compounds. Uh, what were some of the you know, challenges or surprises there, you know, in my conversations with Professor Clark, for example, she mentions that, you know, while the the, the current ketone esters is, is, is still kind of crazy tasting, the other ones are just even crazier, just like completely horrible. I mean, did you have a chance to start playing with them yourself? I mean, what, what was your experience there? We always let somebody else taste the bad stuff. <laughs> um, no, I think that, you know, um, I, I think, you know, the, the folks at Oxford have played with the structure of the ester yeah. to some extent to, to you know minimize um, you know the flavor component of it because that was there was no option if it was going to be you, it may be really good for you but if nobody will eat it it doesn't make any difference and uh, so you know I think that you, you could you could exclude a number of butyrate based kind of compounds just because 
there was nothing you could do with them chemically and there was nothing you could add that would mask it. Right. And so, you know, it, it, it kind of became process of elimination. Right. And certainly the esters seemed to be, you know, um, superior to other, uh, other, other compounds as far as flavor. Right. And, and, you know, and this is, it's, it's, you know, there's still some more tweaking that probably could be done and we'll see where it's going to go. But I mean, I think right now, um, it's, it's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not something I'd sit down with a big glass of, you know, to watch a late night movie. Um, but on the other hand, you know, for what it's intended to do, it, it's as an energy, an immediate energy source, uh, it will work really well, I think. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we've gotten some feedback now and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's quite palatable. I think most people have read like the horror stories on the internet around how this tastes like rocket fuel or jet fuel, and it's like not that bad anymore. Like there's a lot yeah, of work no, to I, get I, the purity up and also the flavoring and and, and proctization work that our team has done. It's actually like not not too crazy. No, I, I I think that's the direction it needed to go. That was always one of the rate limiting factors for this product was you know how do you, how do you take control that uh, that really pungent odor and you know kind of bitter um taste that goes along with it and i really don't even know how to describe you know it's 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 something nobody should really want to experience is the taste of uh, taste of this native compound alone <laughs> yeah i mean i think i guess it, you know my way to describe it is just uh nail polish remover bitter just uh, almost but it's some maybe a, a hint of savoriness i know it's just like a very weird you know, taste it's a strange exist. So, yeah, and and I think yeah, and the other thing is, you know, it's uh, um, the early products had a, a different kind of a difference, different viscosity. It, right. It kind of had greater mouth feel. Right. And seemed to cl cling to your tongue and teeth for extended periods, which <laughs> didn't help. Yeah. Uh, so, I, but I think it's moving in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. What are you excited about moving forward in the future? I mean, I know you hinted a little bit at the clinical applications. Um, so, you know, the most robust published research relate to performance, um, especially endurance performance. I mean, I'm curious your thoughts in how this space unfolds. Um, you know, can we see this as really a fourth macronutrient in, in the sense that every single human is going to have some ketones every single day? Is that in the cards? Um, how do you think this ketone story unfolds? Well, I think, you know, Dr. Veach had, you know, an interesting observation. There's some people who don't tolerate carbs at all. Right. And so, you know, they really need to be on a ketone-based diet. And, um, you know, managing your diet exclusively through intake is difficult. So this gives them a kind of a, a little bit easier way to manage some of that. Right. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, there's there probably will be long-term applications. Uh, as now that we know that the brain is happy metabolizing it, um, you know, we know, for example, that you know, Alzheimer's patients don't metabolize glucose as far as the brain as well as non-Alzheimer's patients. So whether it will improve, can improve cognitive function, you know, you've got diabetic populations that, you know, don't absorb um, glucose into the cells. Um, butyrate does get absorbed into those. So, you know, I think it's just right now at, at the edge of, you know, what its capabilities might be. It was never conceptualized originally to have clinical applications to other diseases, except for knowing Dr. Veach's interest in, you know, the, this particular seizure disorder in kids with carbohydrate intolerance. Right. And, uh, so, you know, we knew that early on. Um, but again, you know, that was kind of a pipe dream. If we could pull this off, could you actually impact that population? 
Right. And I think you know people will be asking those questions. Yeah. Um, we've never been able to manipulate energy metabolism because we, the only thing we've really ever had to put into the system was carbohydrates. Right. And uh, you know, so this gives us a little bit different uh, entry point. And um, well, yeah, yeah, I think you have to look at wait and see how neurons and muscle are actually going to handle butyrate as far as an, an exogenous energy source. Yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, quite obviously we're standing on the shoulders of giants like, like yourself to, to get it at this point. But yeah, there's so much more work to be done. I mean, I, I think you put it absolutely right that um, initially as a performance technology, I mean, it, it makes sense. These are the most robust population. We can get more and more safety data and pharmacokinetic data there. And as that becomes more proven out, can we start attacking some of the most pernicious health problems? I think you were just referencing some of them, Alzheimer's, diabetes. Um, if we can at some point make some impact there, that, that would be, uh, you know, just personally just exciting for the world. I mean, not, not even just for ourselves as a, a small part of the story here. So it's, it's, and it's, it's going to force people to you know, look at metabolism differently and um, consider the options a little bit more. And um, I think, you know, you're looking at um, just a transition point right now, how people are looking at health too. Um, you know, greater consideration as to what goes in my body yep. um, and at least in certain percentage of the population. And so, you know, being able to impact that, you know, you see all kinds of changes going on with microbiome, um, you know, with different diets, different energy sources and you know, discussions that happen across, you know, the, uh, across the health professions. And I'm not sure where it ends, um, but I think we're going to do better in the future than we have in the past. Um, you know, and I'd like to think that, you know, uh, if this opens any doors or makes anybody's life better, extends life or quality of life for people, make me smile, you know, just for a long, long time. It's, you know, it's a, you know, accidental consequences, it's, you know, collateral benefit rather than collateral damage. Yeah. I, I, I want to almost leave it at that. I mean, I think, I, I think the story around the ketonester is, you know, deserves to be told. And I, I think a large part of how this product, how this technology came to existence was through under your ages. So I hope, you know, the story here doesn't end with, you know, just our conversation, but more and more people realize that there's just so much work behind, you know, what we at human are practicing out there. It really came from, you know, years of research, you know, good work over at DARPA that, you know, really dates back, you know, 10, 15, 20, 20 plus years of just, uh, physiology, metabolism, mitochondrial thinking to, to even get to a point to kick this thing off over at and, and, and over at Veach and Clark, and then from here to hand it off to us to take to the world. So, uh, and you know, you go look at you know, Dr. Veach's publications, and you see a co-author named Krebs. You know, <laughs> he, was, he was a student. I mean, you know, this is. I mean, he came. He, really, he's one of the. He, he has an incredible pedigree. Yeah, and incredible knowledge. Same with you know, Dr. Clark. I mean. They're, they just amaze me with their knowledge base and, you know, what their, their ability to conceptualize the science differently and, uh, you know, set a goal and a target and to achieve it, you know, is really remarkable. Very few people have that privilege. Very Most people will you know, get a publication out of it and they've done something that actually can change healthcare and performance. So, you know, I, all I can say is thank you to them. And no, thank you for taking the time, Joe. I appreciate it. And we'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jeff. I've gotten to know Joe over the last few months as we're practicing and bring the ketonester to market. So it's really great to bring his story and his contribution to the work here to you guys. Uh, again, I think 
there's so much history and work with behind what we're doing at, at Human. So excited to showcase these stories and, and bring them to you guys. Um, as always, appreciate your feedback and comments. As you know, from uh, we started a new email hotline, podcast at human.com. Uh, you know, both Zill, my producer, and I read every single email that you write to us on that hotline. And if you leave us a review, just take a screenshot on iTunes, hopefully five stars. But if we, uh, you know, aren't are up to snuff, you know, look, you know, rate us as, as we deserve. But if you give us a review, take a, a screenshot of that. Happy to send you a free Sprint Mini. Uh, Sprint is our acute nootropic for focus and energy. Uh, I'll leave a review. Send a screenshot to podcast.human.com with your feedback. And Zill will send you a free Sprint Mini. Uh, thanks so much and see you next week. Bye.